invite you to turn in your Bibles in the first place this afternoon to Psalm 16. Psalm 16, page 575 in the Adoration Bibles. We'll look at this psalm together with the portion from 1 Corinthians 15 in connection with Lord's Day 22 of our Catechism and the last lines of our Confession of the Apostles' Creed regarding the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Psalm 16, a miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my God. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's turn also to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, page 1223, I believe, in the Adoration Bibles. We begin reading at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is the glory of the sun and the glory of the moon and another glory for the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, 
nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So far, God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We turn also in the back of our forms and prayers books to Lord's Day 22 of the Catechism. We'll read these questions and answers responsively. Page 223 in the forms and prayers books. The first question is asked of us in question 57. How does the resurrection of the body comfort you? Not only will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but also my very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. Question 58. How does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? Even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, so after this life I will have perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has ever imagined, a blessedness in which to praise God eternally." So far, our confession. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, immense sorrow lies in the background of this Lord's Day, doesn't it? I say immense sorrow because few things on this side of glory are as sorrowful as death. According to the Apostle Paul, death is the last enemy. It is an enemy that all those who have gone before us have faced. It is an enemy that every one of us also will face unless Christ first returns. Reflecting on this, Lord's Day, the Reformed pastor Herman Veldkamp writes, Comfort presupposes sorrow, doesn't it? The extent of the sorrow that has been caused and is daily brought by death cannot really be told. Every grave marker is a monument to that sorrow. He says, Barely have the tears been dried in one house over the loss of a loved one before a new fountain of grief bursts forth in another house. To be sure, immense sorrow lies in the background of this Lord's Day, the sorrow of death, the the natural fear of, of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. As I said a number of weeks ago in Lord's Day 16, death, of course, isn't something the world much likes to talk about. But so long as Christ tarries, one out of one people are going to die. 
And we know why that is. Death awaits all men because the curse of sin continues to infiltrate our world. As Paul tells us earlier on in 1 Corinthians 50, if you back up a few verses, we're reminded again that death entered the world through Adam. Death became the penalty of sin. And yet if you have taken refuge in the Lord, as King David has taken refuge in the Lord in Psalm 16, if you've taken refuge in the Lord by coming under the shadow of His cross, then we know that that penalty has already been paid. I trust you're a call we confess there in Lord's Day 6, and having told us that Christ suffered all the way to death for us, the, the natural question then became, well, well, if the curse of sin is death, and if the penalty has been paid, then, then why do we still have to die? Why, why do believers still have to die? And there the catechism simply reminded us that ultimately we leave the answer to that question to the wisdom and counsel of the Lord. All the while affirming that this much we do know, our death is not the payment for our sins, but it merely puts an end to our sinning and is our entrance into eternal life. There's an old Christian song that used to go something like this, I know not what the future holds, but... I know who holds the future. And while we might appreciate a sentiment of that line, we recognize that statement is not altogether true, is it? Because when it comes to the future, when it comes to our future, we do know at least in part what the future holds for us. We have the answers to the questions. What's going to happen to me when I die? Where am I going to go when I die? And these are the questions that our catechism would have us consider this afternoon. As I began to work my way through writing of this sermon, one of the challenges that stood out to me about this Lord's Day is the, the need to relate these truths in a context where we are not necessarily all on the same wavelength. I think it's probably safe to say that these words of Lord's Day 22 perhaps speak more tangibly to those who are 80 than those who are 8 or 18. But still, we have all known the sorrow of death, haven't we? In the last few months, we've suffered the loss of mothers and fathers, suffered the loss of grandpas and grandmas. We've all known the sting of death, the hurt and pain of death. And so the questions arise in our hearts, where am I to go with my sorrow? Where am I to, to go with my grief? And if we've asked those questions, then Lord's Day 22 is written for us. Others of you may be facing different questions as the effects of old age begin to wear you down, as your medicine cabinets become fuller than they used to be, as you start to feel in your bones that this world is not your home. If that's the case, then Lord's Day 22 is written for you as well. What I'd like to simply say to this afternoon is probably not new to most of you, but it is simply to say that there's only one place to go in the midst of these questions, isn't there? And that's to the Lord and to His Word. That's to, to say together with the psalmist, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. And because He is at my right hand, I shall never be shaken. Even in the face of death itself, the psalmist's words ring true for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, even our very flesh dwells secure. For the Lord will not abandon our souls to Sheol, for He has made known to us the path of life 
and in his presence there is fullness of joy. That's the path I'd like for us to walk along this afternoon, the path of life, to to recognize that even though we die, our communion with Christ can never be broken. Our communion with Christ can never be interrupted. Even though we die and our bodies are buried in the ground, our perishable bodies will be raised imperishable. As the Apostle Paul tells us, what is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. Even though we die, our present joy will be transformed into perfect blessedness. And because we can say that, these lines of our confession, the last lines of the creed, ought never to be the last things on our minds. This is the believer's confession. This is his comfort in life and in death. What, what God has joined together, Christ and his church, not even death, can tear apart. And so we can take those words of the apostle in our own lips. Death has been swallowed up, as it were, in victory. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We notice how our catechism, as it is often inclined to do, walks us down the avenue of comfort, and we need to appreciate that this afternoon. The authors of our catechism are not principally concerned with answering all our curiosities. What, what exactly the, the nature of life between this world and the next will be like? but rather to simply speak to us a word of comfort, to secure that comfort for us. Because at the end of the day, that's all we really need, isn't it? At the end of the day, we don't have to have a, a perfect and, and full understanding of, of what we oftentimes refer to as that intermediate state, that, that state between dying in this life and being raised in the next life. But rather, all we need to know in the first place is that when we die, we are taken immediately to Christ, our head. When we die, we are taken immediately into the arms of the very one who loved us, who laid down his life for us. As our catechism says, after this life, our souls are immediately taken to Christ, its head. In the opening lines of this Lord's Air Catechism is picking up on a very similar concern that also need to be addressed in the church of Thessalonica so many years ago. In the fourth chapter of that letter to the Thessalonians, the first letter, the, the question was addressed to the Apostle Paul, what, what becomes of those who have gone before us? Will, will they also see the return of Christ? Anticipating that, that Christ might return in their own lifetimes, that was the burden of the day. What of those saints who have already died? Is there any hope for them? In response to that question, Pastor Paul writes to the congregation with these words, Brothers and sisters, we, we do not want you to be uninformed. We do not want you to be left in the dark about those who have fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. It's important that we recognize here that the Apostle Paul is, is not saying that it's wrong for believers to grieve. He's not saying that it's wrong for for Christians to mourn the passing of a loved one, not at all. Rather, Paul is very concerned that you and I take to heart the fact that the tears which stream down our faces when we grieve the loss of a loved one are, are seen by our Father in heaven. They are kept in his bottle, as the psalmist says in Psalm 56. The God of all comfort, the Father of all mercy, sees those tears at the graveside. He sees the tears that perhaps fill our pillows at night when we think of the loved ones we've lost. 
God sees those tears and he meets each one of those tears with a promise that a day is coming when those tears will be no more. And so the Apostle Paul continues to comfort with these words. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry and a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord together in the air. And so we will always, always be with the Lord. And that last phrase especially is what our catechism seems to be picking up on in the first lines of answer 57. My soul will be taken immediately to Christ its head. I will always be with the Lord. Our glorious communion with Christ cannot be interrupted. It cannot be broken, not even by death. But rather, as Dr. Venom writes in his helpful book on the Apostles' Creed, believers who have been joined through faith with Christ and who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, when they die, they are taken into the very presence of God. The communion with Christ, which they enjoy now, is not interrupted, but rather it is intensified, even upon the event of their death. As David expressed so wonderfully in Psalm 139, God hems his child in behind and before, and he lays his hand upon them. David says, even if I make my bed in Sheol, even there the Lord will find me. Even there the Lord will be with me. And that's the comfort of Lord's Day 22. Not even death can break that communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Not even death can, can cause us to, to wiggle our way out of the good shepherd's fingers. But God hems his child in behind him before and lays his hand upon them. I was reminded of something I once read an old sermon by Reverend Howard, an old Dutch Reformed pastor, who reflecting on these words said, As a pastor, I have stood at many deathbeds where the torch of life has burned very low, the hands lying powerless on the blankets, the tongue no longer able to speak. But in those moments, I have learned more fully who the Lord is. Even at death's door, God has hemmed his child in behind and before and has laid his hand upon her. Even there, God in Christ stands beside her. He covers her back. He holds his arm around her and forever holds on to her. And he is ready to take her to be where he is. And that's our comfort also when we find ourselves walking through that valley of the shadow of death. Our communion with Christ will never be broken. But as John once heard the voice in heaven saying, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed says a spear that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. That voice from heaven speaks to your loved ones who have gone to be with the Lord, that if they've died in the Lord, they've found rest for their souls, even as they wait with eager expectation, eager anticipation for the resurrection of their bodies. How does the resurrection comfort us? Not only will my soul be taken immediately to Christ its head, but even this, my very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul, 
and made like Christ's glorious body. We notice that, secondly, this afternoon, my perishable body, my dishonorable body, my weak body will be raised imperishable, will be raised in glory, raised in strength. This Lord's Day reminds us of what Calvin said so long ago, that the Christian always embraces Christ clothed in all His promises. And the Christian does that knowing that His promises are sure. You and I have not been born again to a dead hope. We have not been born again to to a fake hope, in which case our faith would be futile. But as Peter says, we've been born again to a living hope. A living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And to confirm that reality seems to be at the heart of, of the argument the Apostle Paul is making in this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For there are members in that Corinthian congregation who are starting to suggest that, well, perhaps the, the resurrection of Christ isn't so important. So perhaps it's, it's not such a big deal. Paul reminds them at the start of that chapter that he delivered unto them that which was of very first importance to him. And what he had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He then appeared to His disciples and to 5,000 others to testify that everything He had said before was indeed true. And so the Apostle Paul goes on to say that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised and our faith is futile and we are still in our sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are a people most of all to be pitied. You and I have not been born again to a dead hope. We've not been born again to a fake, faltering hope, but to a living hope the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, our dead, lifeless bodies that are buried in the ground, that are sown in dishonor, that are sown in weakness, will be raised and reunited with our souls and made like Christ's glorious body. The Apostle Paul uses the illustration, the analogy of of a farmer who plants the seed in the ground and how with great expectation. He, he anticipates that that seed planted in the ground will die and raise to something new and glorious. And the Apostle Paul says we need to have the same confidence when it comes to our bodies being buried in the ground that as the farmer with eagerness and anticipation waits for that great harvest, so too will be on the day of Christ's coming. What is sown is perishable, he says. What is raised is imperishable. It is Sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And And for this reason, we who are United to Christ can sing Psalm 16 louder than ever before. The lines have 
have fallen before me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul in Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. God will not abandon his saints to the grave. Even as he raised Christ up from that grave, so too he will raise those who are united to Christ. will not allow them to see corruption. With eager anticipation, eager expectation, our dishonorable bodies right now, which are subject to weakness and human frailty and to, and to disease and sickness and death, will be raised in glory by the power of Christ. By saying that my very flesh will be raised by the power of Christ, the catechism is is bring home the fact that it is this my, myself, same body that will be raised and restored and crowned with glory. And so, contrary to that horrible platonic idea that the body is just some prison house to the soul, that, that eternal life is just disembodied souls floating around for eternity, the catechism says, no, that cannot be the case. That is not what the Bible says. Even this, my very flesh, will be raised again. For as unbroken and as intensified as the believer's communion with Christ is immediately at death, and as great as that intermediate state might be, it is still provisional and incomplete. Again, writes Dr. Venema, man was created for life, for covenant life with God as a creature formed from the dust of the earth. His body was not in the beginning a prison house for the soul. But rather it was the indispensable medium of man's creaturely life and his fulfillment of the mandate given to him to have dominion over all creation. And so what the resurrection of the body is all about is our being fully restored. The full restoration of that which was lost in the fall. Fully restored to, to having the ability once again to, to live according to God's purpose for us. According to our catechism, we have a taste of that already now. Having been born again by the Spirit of Christ, we begin to live in the joy of living as God calls us to live, such that Pastor Paul encourages us with those words, Therefore, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Already now our lives have joy, have new meaning, new purpose. We notice finally this afternoon that what we now know in part, we shall one day know in full. When we walk through those glorious gates of the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when when this mortal body puts on immortality, then shall come to pass a saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And when our lowly bodies are transformed, be like Christ's glorious body, so also our our present joy will be transformed into perfect blessedness. And that's where the Apostles' Creed ends. How does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? And once again, we notice the tone of the question. It's not merely about being able to to give a, a definition of life everlasting. 
It's about the believer's comfort. The believer answers the question, saying, even as I already now experience in my heart the the beginning of eternal life, so too after this life, I will have a perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, such as the heart of man has never imagined, a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. Everlasting life, you see, is much more than simply living on forever. It certainly is that, but it's much more than merely being life without end. Rather, as our Lord described in His high priestly prayer, it is to know God fully and the one whom He sent. It is to to know the Lord without the blinders of our sin and unholiness. To know Him fully. To longer be naked as Adam and Eve were in the garden, but to be fully clothed with the righteousness of Christ, to eat of that tree of life, no longer able to sin. A blessing is to praise God eternally. As Jesus says to us in John chapter 10, the reason that he came was that we might have life and have it abundantly. Which isn't to say that he merely comes to, to give life in perpetuity, but it's a quality of life that Christ refers to. It's a quality of life that Christ speaks of. A truly abundant life which the world knows nothing about. Again, as the psalmist says, the sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. They know nothing about this life in abundance. For the believer, he can say, the Lord is my portion, my cup. He holds my lot. The lines have, have fallen before me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And that's Christ's promise for us today. He speaks to us His word and says, I give you a beautiful inheritance. I make known to you the path of life. And in my presence there is fullness of joy. At my right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So I'd end this sermon tonight by asking the question, do you, do you know that something better awaits you? Do you believe that? Do you live that way? With the promise stamped on your minds and written on your hearts that a better country awaits you. All the saints of the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews tells us, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, they desired a better country that is a heavenly country. And so God was not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city, a city that has foundations, whose builder and designer is not man, but God Himself. In other words, people of God, they lived with eternity in view. And so the question we press ourselves with this morning is this, are we? Are we living that way with eternity in view? That's what our catechism is getting at. The last lines of our creed ought not to be the last thing on our mind. While I wish I could tell you with greater clarity what the world to come is going to be like, our catechism taking its cue from 1 Corinthians 2 simply summons us to recognize that it's going to be better. It's going to be far better than here. 
the present joy that we now have in Christ as real and as wonderful as it is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it is only as seeing through a dark glass dimly. But the joys which are to come are so unparalleled to anything this world has to offer. The best our cast can say, the best that Paul can say, is that it's beyond what our eyes can see. It's beyond what our ears can hear. The eternal joys are beyond what the heart of man can begin to imagine. I was reminded of those closing words in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle where Aslan, the Christ figure, has welcomed his victors into his everlasting kingdom and, and he turns to them and says, the term is over, the holidays have begun. The dream has ended, this is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a line, but the things that began to happen were so great and, and so beautiful that I cannot begin to write them. And as for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say it, they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only ever been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And that's the sense of Lord's Day 22. Even our present joy in Christ today in this life is only the cover and the, the, cover and the title page. But when we enter the world to come, then we'll begin the eternal story which no one on earth has ever read, in which every chapter is better than the one before. It will be a perfect blessedness, as our cat, because in which to praise God eternally. And so until Christ comes, we sing the words, I know not, oh, I know not, what joys await us there, what radiance of glory, what joys beyond compare. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you again this afternoon thankful for the promise, thankful for the comfort that even though we die, our communion with Christ cannot be broken. That even though we die and our bodies are buried in the ground and they return to the dust, our self-same bodies will be raised in glory. Even though we die, our present joy will not be gone, but will be transformed with perfect blessedness. Father, we pray that you would comfort us with the truths of your word, that in our grief and our mourning, we would not grieve as those without hope. But that our hope would indeed be steadfast in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And grant us, Lord, to live with eternity in view, to exercise that faith on tiptoes that peers over the veil of this world and all its hurt and all its struggles into the joys and glories of heaven, the next world where every tear has been wiped away from our eyes, where sin and death and pain are no more, where the tree of life from which we were once barred is now accessible to us again to eat of it forever. Lord, we long for the day when sin will no longer blind us from seeing your glory, when you'll equip us with new heavenly spiritual bodies that can bask your glory in all its fullness. Lord, we pray that Christ would come 
quickly. We pray that we here at Adoration would not see death, but that Christ would come first, that he would come tonight. We would meet him in the air. What a glorious, glorious day that will be. Until then, give us patience, O God. Give us grace and give us faith. For Jesus' sake, amen. For a song of response, stand to sing.